to save the day. He never gives up, he's always there, fighting for freedom over land and air. G.I. is the code name for America's daring, highly trained special mission force. Its purpose, to defend human freedom against COBRA, a ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world. He never gives up, he'll stay till the fight's won. G.I. Joe will dare. G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe. Welcome to episode 71 of G.I. Joeberg. Part 2 of Arise, Serpento, Arise. It's Stephen, Cujo, Robert, and Paul, your faithful hosts. And we pick up where we left off yesterday. Cliffhanger time. Will Sergeant Slaughter, Beachhead, and Lowlight be drilled into oblivion by the Thunder Machine's twin Gatling guns? Or will they indeed evade their Cobra or Dreadnought attackers and escape? fight another day. Take it away, boys. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> were, were we going to talk about Mindbender? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Our definitive sculpt section has taken on a distinctly 1986 slant this time around, since we are discussing the third miniseries, the second season of the Sunbow G.I. Joe animated cartoon season opener, Arise, Serpento, Arise, all of our definitive sculpt choices are from the said miniseries. And tonight, we discuss the definitive sculpt for Dr. Mindbender. He's got the brain, he's got the brawn, he's got the monocle. But which is the best toy, guys? Hmm. I'll start first mostly because I just rescued uh, Dr. Mindbender from G.I. Joe HQ. What were they doing to him? They were interrogating him. They were interrogating the interrogator. They were playing mind games with him. Or was he playing uh, mind games with them? Since he is, of course, the master of mind manipulation. And he's a dentist. My first exposure to Mindbender as a figurine was the 2009 uh, release where he came in the uh, Defense of Cobra Island uh, box set, which is... Possibly one of my favorite box sets that they've ever done for the modern era G.I. Joe line. But it gave me a whole bunch of characters I wanted. And Dr. Mindbender was fantastic. He was this great figurine. I wasn't quite a 25th anniversary uh, sort of, I don't want to say snob, but um, I couldn't quite appraise these figures the way somebody like Steven could at the time. Because I haven't had, I, I think prior to this, I had gotten three or four figures and here I'm seeing unique body sculpts, unique head sculpts. I'm not seeing any part reuse or anything like that. That only started revealing itself later. So I thought Mindbender was, at the time, a fantastic figure. And I do still stand by that. I do think that the modern era Mindbender is a great toy. And then I got my hands on the vintage 1986 Dr. Mindbender version 1. And as much as I love modern era folks... The original is pure gold for me. It has got a lot of detail that is missing from the uh, modern era figure. It is important detail, I think. I'm, of course, referring to his uh, silver chains. You know, he kind of makes the spenders cool in a bad guy way. But if you take off his cloak, which is, uh, you know, made out of felt, 
you're given this really great kind of cobra sigil on this metal piece that's on his back. This guy is just cobra for life, you know, and he's wrist guards. He's got those uh, funky purple wrist guards with the little trident design on there. And of course, the little buttons on his crotch piece is to, um, you know, stimulate or to open or to vent his farts, you know, whatever. <laughs> and <laughs> the man's got it. He's got all of the tools. Everything works. Um, I, I, I will say that when I got the modern era figure, it did feel like something was missing. And when I got the vintage era, uh, vintage figurine of it, I was like, oh, that is exactly what was missing. The cool gun, the weird giant dental appliance, the tube that goes into the backpack. Also, I believe to help vent his farts. No, I think I'm not even sure that gun is. It's, it's played many roles in my sort of imagination one of them is it's a kind of a gas gun to get people to talk and things or like some kind of uh uh sort of nerve agent but anyway long I think story short ron I rudat think... ron rudat describes it as like a cattle prod some kind of electroshock device there you go ladies and gentlemen not only is he a cool sculpt but he is kinky as fuck okay <laughs> This is a figure you have to have in your collection, and I am, of course, referring once again to 1986's Dr. Mindbender version 1. I think that this is the definitive sculpt of this character, and if you wish to own a Mindbender, this is the guy that you should buy, because the one that comes in the 7-pack is unbelievably overpriced. Hmm. Point taken. Does anyone have any other definitive sculpt to enter into consideration, or are we all kind of stacking up behind version 1? Mm, I have version 7 to, to speak about a little bit. Damn, boy, you're reading my mind. Uh, why, don't, why don't you take it away, Rob, and I'll, I'll add some spice to that. Well, I, I, I like the you know the craziness of the original, but I, I, I feel like I respect version 7 more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, okay, it's the Arctic version of the character, but I mean, it, it's it's kind of played down. He's he's wearing this this wonderful purple kind of buttoned up top with a ruffled fur lining into the jacket, and he's he's he looks pretty awesome, and and I, I kind of respect that. And he looks he looks properly sinister and like a real scientist, and he comes with a cool little gray pistol, um, modeled after the the Mauser, pretty cool too. And I think he comes with a laptop. He's like he's yeah. all ready to, um, yeah, yeah. He's he's all ready to, uh, you know, enact mind control over people. <laughs> so my, my my enjoyment of him is is pretty practical. Um, where are you coming from, Kuja? Uh I like that. I, I also think that we often give the collectors club a hard time. This is one where they did it right. Uh, this is a mind bender for the battlefield. I think. I mean, it's situational, obviously, but that coat is a beautiful sculpt, and, and the and the face work is good too. I do think that the first version, 86, like, dude, I love talking Mindbender just because I live in the land of mind control. So it's something I chew on every day. Uh, Mindbender is this perfect kind of marriage of just absurdity. But, like, I remember Robert and, and uh, talking about Kubrick last conversation. I see, I see you, brother. Yeah. He does have kind of a clockwork orange uh, suspender thing. And with that monocle, you could definitely kind of put a bowler on him, and he'd look nuts. But yeah, I mean, the shirtless look, it makes sense, uh, because a character like Mindbender, if you read through his file cards, like version 1 through 7, you get a pretty nice picture of a guy who's extremely confident, but fragile as well. And and I think, I mean, credit to the uh, cartoon so far, 
they've showed that pretty well. So I, I like I like both those. I like V7 and V1. I can't decide. Hmm. I remember my earliest brushings with Dr. Mindbender being along the lines of, I am never going to ever buy that toy. Maybe it was because I was far too young to appreciate his importance to G.I. Joe Cannon, but I was just really put off. I think I was about four or five, but really put off by a bare torso on an action figure. I mean, that was entering to the realm of He-Man. And in many respects, Mindbender would fit in just fine in the pantheon of He-Man or Masters of the Universe figures. Something about the marriage of the purple and the bare torso. Hell, the face sculpt as well. I mean, if you gave him a blue skin tone, bam, he's in there. Or maybe orange would contrast nicely with the purple. Anyway, aside from that, I now see his importance. And as an adult, I can appreciate exactly how well sculpted that torso is. It's very, very good. I'd say you couldn't get a better torso sculpt even today. I mean, for my money's worth, just the, the, the muscle tone, the definition, like it's all there, uh, and it's very impressive, especially considering, you know, this was in the, more or less in the era, uh, just after Masters of the Universe, where the physiques were absurd. This is like, yeah, he's a beefy dude, but he's not out of proportion. It all works. He has got a weird head. Uh, he's certainly a lot more handsomely elongated uh, in, in terms of his head proportions in the cartoon and also in the comic books. But there's something quite unique about the action figure, and you've got to have it in hand to observe this. If you look at the non-monocled side of his face, you can see the bulge of where his eyeball sits in its socket. If you flip the action figure around and look at the monocled side of his face, his eye socket is sunken in, way beyond where it is on the exposed eye. So all of a sudden, the action figure makes the character look like he has some kind of cybernetic eye in place of a real eyeball. Now, in the cartoon and the comic books, we often see uh, his eye beneath the glass, but uh, just evaluating the action figure on its own, I'd like to go with the, the possibility that, that he might have a cybernetic eyeball. Did anybody... What's a mistake on the part of the sculptors? Well, did, that mistake any... seems to be carried over into his battle core version, which has an even more cybernetic-looking uh, enhancement over his right eyeball. So there might be some credit to my theory. But I love that yeah, it's, it's goofy. That's a stretch. It's Machiavellian. It's, it's a supervillain. Hey, did anybody on that side uh, play the Arkham series, the Batman game? Yeah, of yeah. course. Um, of course. Listen to you. Um, <laughs> I even gave it a whirl. <laughs> well, did, did you realize in that that the penguin had a bottle shoved in his eye? Yeah, it I wasn't a that monocle. That's what call. It's very likely that model sheets and uh, model sheets being the um, sort of the de facto character design that gets passed around uh, for the animators to work from was uh, misinterpreted, uh, or rather, should I say the the design uh, was maybe done as a or was obviously done as an illustration. It was sculpted, and then maybe maybe it was meant to be a cybernetic eye, and maybe that's something that they had to quickly retcon. Uh, it's possible, but 
I strictly speak for the the action figure sculpts because I mean you can see his eyeball behind the glass even on the card art. So it is purely yeah a quirk of the sculpt that it is far more sunken into his skull in the monocled eye. No, nothing gets by you, Stephen. Yep, yep. I love to fantasize about my action figures. I sit there and fondle them on my table all day and allow them to show me their secrets. Well, it's just it's so a, a reminder that, you know what, that when we're playing with our toys, that sometimes we shouldn't be so rational about things and, and maybe take things like that further with our imaginations instead of just um, remarking it on it as, oh, it was just sculpted that way. You know, I mean, when we were kids, we did stuff like that. I mean, I, I remember a certain story about how in like preschool, the yellow parts inside Skeletor's eye sockets, which were, you know, sort of meant to give him that scary look. I mean, apparently they were so poisonous it could kill you if you ate that. You know, those kind of like playground cool. conspiracies. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, and I choked that up to something cool like that, you know, to, to remember to be kids, guys. When you're messing with your toys, don't take it so seriously. How dare you? So, I think uh, for the most part, version 1 is definitive and very difficult to top, but with version 7 being a very notable mention, and as Rob says, a more more respectable entry into Dr. Mindbender's uh, lookbook. But back to our cliffhanger, Sergeant Slaughter, Beachhead, and Lowlight of facing down multiple barrels of steel-jacketed death. <laughs> or should I call it blue-laser death? How do they get themselves out of that one? I mean, at this point, the only thing stopping them from being mowed down is the fact that Thrasher will only pull the trigger if his acceptance into the Dreadnoughts is assured. Zartan, of course, says, Of course! Yeah, just... Kill the Joes. Just hurry up and shoot. Famous last words. Because what does the Sarge do at that point? Tell us, Cujo. Sergeant Slaughter has that obscene grenade. And I don't know what the artists were thinking. Like, I don't know what it was written up as. Like, Sergeant Slaughter, since he's a larger-than-life human, has larger grenades. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But, yeah, he uses that as kind of a distraction to uh, redecorate the inside of the cabin, right? Yeah, if I had large grenades, I'd also redecorate the inside of cabins. Moving along. It's a uh, tear uh, gas, isn't indeed. it? Yeah, it is a gas grenade. He, he spells that out, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, really telegraphing it to the Cobras and to the kids out there who, um, you know, grenades are not the kind of thing that you throw at flesh and blood people. Anyway, so... Flesh and while, beauty people. <laughs> <laughs> while the Dreadnoughts are choking back on tear gas... The Joes rush into a cabin, and this is the best thing ever. The Sarge is confronted by a stone wall, which offers very little resistance whatsoever. He proceeds to punch through it. <laughs> I, I gotta say, that's, that's a personal high point of the episode. I mean, we are just so singing out the, the Sergeant Slaughter fanfare at this point. It's it's not even funny. Like, sales of this particular character must have been skyrocketing. And, of course, you had to get the crappy Triple T along with him. But, you know, whatever. All I want for Christmas I thought you, I thought you were singing that thing's praises. Uh, last no, you episode. hate the Triple T. 
What's there to like <laughs> about the Triple T, gentlemen? Can anyone salvage that vehicle for me? Uh, it comes with no, some slaughter. <laughs> one of the only things that salvages a Triple T is that if you got a a Christmas gift or a birthday present and it was all wrapped up, it is a similar. I think that box is a similar size to the Battle Barge and the um, Radar Rat, and uh, not that they were out at that time, but. Anyway, the only thing that that salvages the Triple T is that if you open I'd it say, up, I'd and say it, it's more of a Bravo-sized vehicle. I mean, if you want to use the the current nomenclature, uh, yeah. Whereas the Radar Rat and, and Battle Barge would be an Alpha. If you know what I mean. Yeah, true. So yeah, it's well, a slightly bigger box, and and it includes a driver. So like, it would be a more premium item than than the basic basic vehicles. But yeah, continue, Polly. If you got that and it wasn't a battle barge and it wasn't a swamp, ra- uh, um, it wasn't a radar rat, or something of that uh, standard of that caliber, then I think you, then I think you should count yourself fairly lucky, you know. And you get a sergeant slaughter figure with it, so woohoo! It's got but some bells and whistles. It's got some remove. It's got a removable engine cover. I mean, it's it's not an altogether disastrous vehicle, but the design is just unfortunate. I mean, with the same quantity of plastic remixed in a slightly different way you could make a cooler one-man tank surely yeah i i i, t- I fully agree with that, but, out, yeah. well it's a it's a drivable shooting gallery i mean that's all that that's how i see vehicles that have no, not even a like even a glass canopy kind of but let's not you, let's not get into that we gotta yeah, say that vehicles with a superstar <laughs> driver are always going to be a chariot the yeah. warthog, the warthog, however, breaks that convention. But Slaughter already got the triple T, so like, give him a, a well, make him more of a, an ancillary item to a cool vehicle his second time around, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah. the triple T, it's even named after a wrestling move. This is entirely yeah. just his like, chariot. <laughs> so give him a high seat with maximum visibility to show off. The Sarge being the Sarge. So TTT doesn't stand for like Tits Tits Tank? Tag Team Not Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Titty Tag Team. I don't know. Sounds good. Moving along. <laughs> yeah, moving along. So no one's able to salvage that vehicle for me? Thank you. It will remain on the uh, unpurchasable list. This Steven Blacklist. Seriously now, jokes aside, it's an 86 vehicle and... For me, that's a redeeming quality because I, I would love to have the entire 86 line vehicles at all. But um, yeah, you want the havoc? I actually don't mind the havoc. I, I'm not gonna lie. I don't love it. It's not like my first choice. But if I could get a havoc fairly cheap, I wouldn't say no. They don't fetch a high price. They're hell of a common, actually. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if I needed to it, it to fill up a, a shipping, like if I if I got like a vehicle that I really wanted, and the shipment on uh, the shipping price was the same price as the vehicle, and that seller had a havoc that I could divvy up the shipping over two vehicles, then I'd totally get a havoc. You could throw a hydro sled into the box. <laughs> no, fuck no. Hey, it's 86, baby. It is, it is, but like it can wait. I mean, I, if I, one day I find myself in America and I'm at a flea market and I find the hydro sled there and it's going for shit and I can negotiate it down. Yeah, that'll probably be the day I get a Hydra sled. Still better than the Cobra Battle Barge. 
Yeah, it can move. What happens after he rearranges the cabin? He escapes, ostensibly, and uh, and gets back to GHQ, I presume. But we take a round trip and cut to Paris. This time around, G.I. Joe is visiting real landmarks and actual cities and, and locations. We're not battling at the top of the world or... Ladies or and gentlemen, I present to you the only episode of the G.I. Joe cartoon series that Stephen Summer ever watched. Okay? <laughs> Just putting that out there. Where are you pulling that from? Well, Stephen Summer directed the, uh, the first G.I. Joe blockbuster... And uh, uh, it also had a famous landmark, the Eiffel Tower, and oh. a lot of the action was set in Paris. I mean, this one carried more social commentary, or at least uh, political commentary, didn't it? Because, like, French actively is like, no, we're going to stay neutral. And the Joes are like, really? That's your play? It's weird because you, you get the mayor coming out and saying, no, we don't want your stuff here. But surely the Joes had to get clearance initially to be able to even bring all those vehicles into the country. Yeah. You know, an airport, they would have to fly them in. And, I mean, someone in the, in the French government must have given them permission to be there. And if it's so important, why didn't the French pitch in? Yeah, G.I. Joe, man, international heroes. I guess uh, everyone else's armed forces shirk the responsibility of defending their own nations. And it's up to G.I. Joe to stop Cobra the enemy. It's like G.I. Joe has the sole mandate and every other armed force in the world gives them their space. Except, no, you can't roll tanks through the streets of Paris, which I kind of agree with. But, uh, you know, Hawk does make the point that we're going to have to do this with limited firepower, just the ore strikers and recon sleds. What hope could they possibly have against an enemy that is quite happy to send supersonic uh, fighter bombers like roaring through the, the the streets of Paris. It's um it's quite one-sided, and GI Joe are clearly getting their asses kicked on every front because they lose the battle of Napoleon Bonaparte's grave or crypt. Who, by the way, was not short. Moving along. Really? <laughs> yeah, really, really. Why does he have that complex then? He doesn't. It's propaganda. It's just propaganda that's uh, kept itself into in um, current mainstream. Uh, I don't even say current mainstream. It's just propaganda that was accepted as fact, and it's it's not fact actually. He was of average height, and he did not have a small man complex. His problem was um, that he was not fully French. That's all. One time, I don't know. This one person said something. They said, uh, "Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story." I don't, exactly. know, I don't remember who that was. You got me wondering where that quote comes from. That, that was I Paul like that from a couple of episodes ago. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Self-referential. Yeah, but where did Paul get it from? Or maybe it's created its own legacy. And, like, all of a sudden, I, th- I assume greatness. Like, it must have come from someone who knew some shit. But it's actually no, it my friend. No, clearly came from somebody smarter than fucking Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> no, I know. Uh, no, but uh, jokes aside, I have heard that from somewhere. And it is actually a famous author who said that. Uh, I just cannot think of his name right now. Ernest Hemingway. It is a... There we go. <laughs> I don't know. I uh, presume so. But uh, I think Cujo might want to speak to his favorite uh, dynamic duo, doing some pretty acrobatic maneuvers, getting past the Joes and getting into the crypt where they could use their 
we don't even know what these things are called. They're never adequately named in the show, but it's a device that not only consumes the DNA of the uh, remains, but makes them disappear. Like it, it sucks the entire body or whatever's left of the body into a little mechanical device. But anyway, Kuja, the twins. Was that a beautiful bit of animation or what? Um, what, what are they doing in this particular instance? This is at the tomb, right? Yeah, they're uh, vaulting the over grenade under the car. They're vaulting okay, over yeah. GI Joes. They're they're blowing up the mayor's pimp and ride. Well, you know the twins are always good for a flip. It's just what's going to happen after the flip because they always flip right into a, a, a scissor kick or something. So, I mean, I, it wasn't bad when they're attaching the device to Napoleon's remains. They say, this won't take long. Yes, Napoleon always was a little short. <laughs> See, I didn't find that bit of humor. That didn't hit. Some of it did. Some of it did, but not that one. Clearly, you um, agree with Paul's conspiracy theory that Napoleon was indeed of average height. It doesn't matter. It's what we know. So, like, who knows? So they use their acrobatics to get inside. They then run outside, jump on all strikers, and the Joes have been defeated. That's the first strike. G.I. Joe is also protecting the remains of Ivan the Terrible all the way in Siberia, where they get some rather unique assistance in the form of the October God. And, gents, is this the first time we've encountered the October God in the animated series? There's an episode where the October God appear because of some loophole with regards to Alaska's uh, oil pipeline. I think that's the first time we see the October God in the Tumbo cartoon. I could stand yeah, corrected. Wasn't that the one with the with the alien? The alien. Oh Lord, yes. <laughs> I think that does come before the Alaskan pipeline thing. Yes. <laughs> the alien. Oh Lord. <laughs> so they're established characters in Sunbow, but I'm sure we can all agree their debut was clearly in the Marvel comic. But my point is, it's an interesting reference to Marvel comics. Mm. It's like these are beloved enough characters that they're making an appearance. They, They don't have action figures. There's no plan to make action figures of them. But they are so prominent and 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 have such a following from the comic book lore that we're going to incorporate them lock stock and barrel even down to their their principal character names into the cartoon the designs were varied uh horror show and colonel brackoff look like their comic book counterparts for the most part but dana she has a kind of a pink fetish which i'm not entirely on board with I'm sure we can all agree her design in the comic book was far stronger, being the entirely competent female soldier with a dirty blonde short hair stuck into that tanker's hat and typically wearing a singlet, looking damn fine. She was great. Mm. You can bet she doesn't wear a brassiere. (laughs) (laughs) I not wear bra. What did they say? Yo, Joski. They say yo, Ivan. Yo, Ivan. There we go. And then they get... and then. And then G.I. Joe manages to brainwash them and indoctrinate them into the, the evil American G.I. Joe ways, and eventually they start going, yo, Joski. I don't see Cold that as... real, man. No, when you see American spirit, you just get caught up, dude. That's all. Yeah, it must be. I'm sure if I saw Africa spirit, which I have, 
I get excited too, and I do. No, you so won't. while that's going down in Siberia, over in the Yucatan, the Joes are creeping through the world's meanest salad <laughs> in search <laughs> of the tomb of Montezuma. That team is being spearheaded by Flint and Ricondo. Over in Egypt, Dusty's heading up a team of Joes to guard the tomb of Zanath... What? Zanathamon... Zanath Amon Toth. <laughs> wow. Nice. How many, how many words is that? Bless you. Zanath Too many. Amun Toth. I think it's three. Bless you. In you any can't case... can't on the radio. Children listening. We stay with Dusty's team when he intercepts a local villager complaining that Cobra has attacked her people. And not only does Dusty dispatch a team to go check it out, he dispatches everybody. Havocs, mm-hmm. recon sleds, all strikers, even the Air Force. You've got X-30s cruising overhead to try and seek out this village and stop the Cobra harassment of the villagers. Of course, it's misdirection, because what happens? The distressed villager turns out to be Zorana in disguise. Mm-hmm. Zorana is super smart. I mean, I wasn't expecting Zorana at first. I thought it was going to be the Baroness, and I actually think they went as far as to play with... Uh, I think Morgan Lofting actually did the voiceover for the villager, and then... It uh, switched over to uh, Serana's voice actress. But uh, yeah, Serana, she's quite a crafty little minx. She caught them off guard. She got them away. She started and she's made her way inside the tomb to go and get the DNA remains. And uh, I don't quite know how Dr. Mindbender is communicating with her because there doesn't seem to be much of a communication device. It seems to be that she's replaying her conversation with him in her mind. Or he is directly speaking to her via telepathy. So he's well, like, you know, he's dispensing important advice like, it's important to watch for booby traps. The way I understood it, it's, it's a recording that Mindbender made for her. But my issue with this is that she's listening to it while she's doing it. Why didn't she listen to it before? Then she wouldn't have any problems. I kind of thought it was a storytelling device. Like it pulls the iris out a little bit and you hear like a voiceover conversation. So I, I think yeah. maybe she was hearing it in her mind. I thought that whole scene kind of evoked the beginning of Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, whatever that movie was. Yes. Um, I, and I, I thought that, lifted that from Guardians. You, I think you're right. Well, I, don't, I mean, I don't know who lifted what from whom, but like <laughs> if they would have kind of like framed it a little bit better, that was a great scene. That kind of almost goes unnoticed. I liked it. Oh, it didn't go unnoticed. I agree with Rob's explanation, but I'd take it a step further and say that it's in Zorana's character to be cocky and nonchalant. She had this recording that she got from Mindbender saying, okay, when you're walking into the tomb of Zanath Amuntoth, there are a few things you got to look out for. Uh, A, booby traps. B, there's going to be something hanging over the exact tomb. You know, he gave all these kind of pointers, expecting her to listen to it, like, on the flight over there. But she's like, whatever, I'll do that later. <laughs> so she hits yeah, the play. Yeah, it's definitely a very layered scene. Exactly. She hits the play button as she's kind of strolling into the thing, thinking, oh, I've just gotten rid of the Joes. Now it's just me and the tomb of Xanathamon Toth. And... 
I hope he died with a boner. So we see genuine surprise, and she's absolutely stressed out because, like, she's got the you know arrows flinging out at her. She's um, been trapped by her boot, and the ceiling is proceeding to to come down on her. The spiked ceiling. So we see that she might have bitten off more than she could chew, and she would have done a bit better had she listened to Mindbender's briefing instead of just like playing it on the fly. But she is a crafty little devil and manages to get out in fine style by slithering her foot out of her trapped boot, getting the remains gathered into her device, and getting away before the ceiling descends and crushes her completely. Of course, (laughs) G.I. Joe Wiki are quick to point out that was this booby trap designed to destroy the remains of Xanath Amontoth? That's the only conceivable function that having a booby trap suspended right above the crypt could have had. You'll never get these remains, even if it means we have to destroy them. Oh, and Mm -hmm. that gives rise (laughs) to my favorite line, because the Joes double back just in time to catch Sorana getting aboard the Thunder Machine, which springs out of, once again, another sort of foldable truck shell. I mean, there there are elements of Mask, there are elements of Transformers. Like, G.I. Joe clearly needed some, like, just basically vehicle shells to hide their their cool stuff inside. But anyways, Sorana... Something we spoke about in episode 69, I believe. Precisely. Zorana and Thrasher bullets off, and she says, So long, morons! <laughs> it's pretty on the nose, but she does have a way with words. And she's a refreshing breath of air. I mean, all of the Cobras can be a little bit stuffy at times. Zorana, she's got some savvy. She's got some sass. There's some shaky animation in this series, but what takes the cake is what they do with, oh Christ, the Thunder Machine. When it comes down that flatbed, dude, the the nose slinks down. Like, yeah. did anybody t- like what? Yeah, that was done on purpose. I kind of find things like that to be fairly novel in animated series. It almost gives it more character. Like, it makes it just feel more rubbery and alive. Um, right. Even though, in some cases, I do think that it's unintentional, or rather, I think the effect is is intentional, but it's designed to be more subtle and. Yeah, that the animators at that time, maybe their direction was more heavy-handed. They were like, yo, make bouncy, make bouncy, go, 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 go. Who gives a fuck, you know, kind of thing. I think they thought there were more articulation points to that vehicle than they actually are. Yeah, (laughs) indeed. Nice. Yeah, I don't know too many chassis to do that. It's like making the Thunder Machine an articulated rig, which it obviously isn't. It's, you know, it's a fixed chassis. I don't know. The alternative to doing it like that, because it was quite a graceful move as it as it kind of dropped off from the truck and, and showed off that articulation quite prominently. I mean, it was definitely deliberate. I, it wasn't an animation error. It's interesting. It's a mystery to me. I don't mind it. The alternative would have been, and this is probably the stronger alternative, but to make use of the, the jet engine at the back of the Thunder Machine and have it sort of a rocket. Yeah, launch it off the truck. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Get, go that airborne. That would have been probably easier to animate, too. Yeah. Certainly more exciting. Awesome. I think it's really sexy how she's like shooting out the side of the window there and she's like shooting back at the Joes. I mean, because ultimately they realize they've been had and they rush back to Amentoth's 
tomb to salvage whatever they can from the whole situation and of course encounter a Serana that's fleeing and shooting at them from the side window. I gotta say, that vehicle, more than any other vehicle I can think of in the G.I. Joe, uh, in the in the toy collection, the Thunder Machine just suits somebody hanging out the side of it and shooting backwards. I don't know, maybe I'm just crazy, but it just it has that kind of rock and roll sex appeal to it, that car. I miss my Thunder Machine. Well, we're going to play with mine soon, so don't worry. Easy. What's next? <laughs> I feel like we should break the the continuity of the episode slightly by just wrapping things up with Zorana. She manages to create a a dam rupture. She blows a hole in a dam wall, and that's how she escapes. Very effectively, in fact. And this is where a slight error seems to creep in. The Joes fall into the water and get washed out. Zorana and Thrasher drove up onto the other side of the bank. In a way, yeah. When we see them next, they're underneath the, the newly created waterfall, and that's how they make their escape. I guess there was some conflict in the scripting, because if they indeed were driving up the opposite bank and trying to get away, they've evaded the G.I. Joe Havocs, Ore Strikers, and other land vehicles. But the Joes also had X-30s in the area, and let's not lose sight of the fact that Lift Ticket and Lifeline are airborne in the Tomahawk. So a little bit of a plot finagle we have there to make good their escape. But I'll let it slide. We shift our focus to yet another burial site, this time in Transylvania, where Beachhead and Mainframe are tasked with reaching and then protecting the crypt of Vlad Tepes. Well, this brings us something interesting. As they're making their way to um, the castle or whatever, you overhear one of the characters mentioning taking his kids trick-or-treating. Who was oh, that? Oh, yeah. Mainframe, uh, I, I think believe. that's Mainframe, yeah. Is that Mainframe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They seem to be giving this guy a lot of character. Like, like we know he fought in Vietnam, he loves video games, and he has kids. I mean, that's probably the most I know about almost any Joe. You know, except some of the other ones. Like, you see Flint's family in the cartoon. We've been quoted on this podcast saying that Rodden Friedman dismissed the file cards. He was very dismissive of the information contained therein. But in the case of Mainframe, whoever was scripting around that character did have a handle on his file card, which describes that he was 10 years older than the next youngest guy in basic training. But this was after he had already served in the final year of hostilities in Vietnam as a Marine. So he went to Silicon Valley after that, then re-enlisted and was an older guy. So he's clearly lived a life outside of the armed forces and now has come back. The problem is his character design is pretty youthful in the cartoon. He seems a little bit older, a little bit more haggard in, in his comic book appearances. And certainly the action figure looks um, looks kind of wrinkled, wouldn't you agree? The face sculpt? Yeah, I'd say. I'd say he looks a bit more haggard as a, as a figurine. Uh, he looks just a little bit more world-weary, a little older than the rest of his, um, his comrades. <laughs> We're not ageist on G.I. Joburg. Don't use the word haggard. Well, some of us don't believe in time, so maybe Mainframe's been here since the beginning. Mm-hmm. But a flat circle, gentlemen. What did you guys think about that team up for one? Like, did that make sense to you? 
like mainframe I, and beachhead. Yeah. I think as far as the as the animated series uh, is concerned, it makes sense because they just they kind of fun characters. In a lot of ways, you got Beachhead's uh, overwhelming sense of duty, and and we've already got Mainframe's sort of goofball attitude uh, starting to come through a bit. Uh, right in uh, well, it's revealed to us earlier on that he, you know, like Steve says, he's enjoying video games and things like that, and and he even uh, makes an excuse for why he does that, you know, to avoid the the thousand yard stare, you know. So, uh, yeah, I think it is. I, I think it's great to to pair up a goofball and a serious guy together. Even Don't though misquote technically, me, man. Don't misquote me. I wouldn't call mainframe a goofball at all. But there's an element well, of levity. No, he is elements... quoting me saying that he played video games. Ah, right. Sorry, Rob. That was my. Paul bad. is calling him a goofball. <laughs> no, I'm saying mainframe. I wouldn't go so far as to call him a goofball. But his his level of experience and the years that he served in and out of the armed forces give him a little bit of a, a bit of levity when it comes to tense situations. So while Beachhead is kind a of perspective on life, Beachhead is kind of all business, and mainframe's like diffusing, diffusing, diffusing. But he never drops his professionalism. I wouldn't say he's being a bad soldier. But he's got he's got a lighter side. He's certainly not as goofy as like a quick kick. Those clowns. If he's kind of a data miner or something, or good with electronics, what's he doing in Transylvania? I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit I, out of out of character. I think out of all these early missions, my favorite dynamic is Ricondo and and who did you say he was rolling with? Flint, along with two eighty sixes, that being Lowlights and Dial Tone. I liked that group of people. I liked that subplot, but w- are we there yet? Absolutely, we can go there. So night falls in the Yucatan, where Flint, Ricondo, Lowlight, and Dialtone are watching over the crypt of Montezuma. Feeling the heebie-jeebies. Quite a spooky atmosphere. At this Very point much. of the episode, we've got a team in Transylvania. We've got a team during a pitch black nightfall in the jungle and out there in the jungle there lurks a team of dreadnoughts led by Zartan but who steps up to the plate saying that he's got this under control none other than Zartan's kid brother (laughs) the kid with the pink hair Xandar what do you guys think of Xandar's portrayal in this sequence did you have to appreciate that scene though like, because who is it? Somebody's like, there's a cobra out there. I can sense it. And then right away, Zartan's like, there's Joe's out there. That was just a great, great uh, smash cut there. Agreed. I kind of always want Xandar to be a little scarier than what he really is. And the whole, like you said, the spooky scene feels like it should Xandar up that way. But he doesn't come across that way. He In the animated series, uh, and I suppose in the toy line, he does come off as a bit of a Zartan knockoff, which is sad because Xandar is, on paper, I find Xandar to be very cool. My first encounter with Xandar was was in the movie, and I mean, he has a barely a line of dialogue in there, but something about his portrayal in the movie seemed much cooler than, than how he was portrayed here. Well, he's completely ineffectual here. I mean, it's, yeah. it serves to diffuse the tension. You've got Joe saying, hmm, Cobra's out there. And the Cobra's being like, hmm, the Joes are out there. <laughs> Xandar steps up to the plate. Don't worry, brother, I'll do it. And he immediately gets shot down 
or shut down <laughs> by lowlights. So it's like, he's a bit of a joke. His sister just kicked all kinds of ass, firstly misdirecting G.I. Joe, the entire team, and then surviving the tomb of Xanath Amon Toth. But Xandar doesn't really have the goods when it comes to being uh, sneaky. Boys well, with pink hair, and, and it's great because I can't remember if, if in the show it's, um, this line is said before that. Uh, I think it is said a little bit before that, but when, um, I think it's Dial Tone that says it's kind of spooky and uh, whatever, and Lowlight's reply to that is, it's so badass. He's just so, it's not scary. <laughs> like, he's seen shit, you know what I mean? And that makes him worse. so cool. I've seen yeah. worse. <laughs> I love him. He's so, like, up in his own head. And that even serves to make Xandar even more ineffectual because Lowlight, our hero, one of the protagonists in the scene, is more scary and badass than Xandar. Yeah, Xandar is a fail, sadly. I love Team 86. I really do. They mean business. Yeah, no, they, they, they're not a kid's toy anymore, man. So this is a pretty cool sequence that plays out in the Yucatan. The Dreadnoughts go full assault mode on the Joes and manage to force them into a pool of water. And then they're pelting the water with laser fire. Uh, and the Joes are forced to swim deeper and deeper and deeper. I mean, I think Zartan's plan, if I'm understanding him correctly, is to heat up the water to the point where the Joes are boiled alive. But some quick thinking saves the day. Flint notices a underground passage. So the Joes go Tomb Raider style and swim through and wind up inside the crypt where Zartan and Monkey Wrench have already headed in to swipe the DNA of Montezuma. Zartan discovers that one of his new dreadnoughts has a rather alarming phobia. Yeah, that really didn't do it for me. Just the, the fear of spiders. Uh, it was kind of a waste uh, of scripting uh, for me. Uh, for me, it doesn't bug me. I, I kind of think the f- uh, it, <laughs> it kind of cements that Zartan actually made the wrong choice. And it, it's kind of like reinforced here like uh maybe monkey ranch wasn't like the best choice you know maybe maybe he should have uh, brought thrasher along that that's just what it feels like you know monkey ranch is our new buffoon dreadnought that's why i don't feel it is too much of a waste because it kind of tells that story it also takes away a bit of that like hardcoreness of um monkey ranch it kind of it kind of makes this bad guy relatable to us kitties when we're watching it it's like Oh, okay, he's also scared of spiders. Okay, even even big bad cobras are scared of spiders. It's also probably really funny if you're, like, nine. I do think, I mean, it, it continues to illustrate that Zartan is probably one of the most competent people in the series, but he continually surrounds himself with fools. So maybe that's allegorical. I don't know. I do get Xandar. I mean, he's trying to impress his brother. You know, they're a stalemate, and he's like, look, I'm a wild card. And he does. He does force everybody's hand. Yeah. yeah, more balls than brains, old Xandor. Yeah, I don't like that outfit either, though. So I, I, I get where you guys are at. Yesterday, you mentioned something about Iceberg's alleged hometown in Waco, Texas, Cujo. You want to speak about that, buddy? I mean, it, Waco is, is a word that everybody in the States knows. I mean, it was a day that stuff really got out of hand and and, and some people got killed. So, I mean, like, it's always had that stain on it uh, when what, you hear what it. What year was that? Can you remember? Christ. Uh, not really. Maybe late 80s. 
but they do have, I mean, it's a college town too. So there's always positive stuff coming out about that, but like, it doesn't take much. I mean, when you say Kent state on, on state side, people know what you're talking about. Like that's all that needs to be said. So when you say Waco, you're usually talking about uh, where the government flexed on some people that were misbehaving. Well, not to split hairs or anything, but Duke jokes with Iceberg saying, and this is in the Siberia sequence, jokes with Iceberg saying, well, Iceberg's complaining about how he wishes that uh, his hometown got as cold as Siberia. It's Duke who makes the mistake, listing Iceberg's hometown as Waco, Texas. But Iceberg's file card says he's from a place called Brownsville. Hmm. I mean, Duke is probably reaching for the fact that, I mean, it's a weird place to reference, but... I mean, Texas is hot, gentlemen. Mm-hmm. A lot of sweating in the summer there. That's, I mean, that's that's football country, uh, American football, if you will. And ranching. <laughs> Just to wrap up the Yucatan, Zartan and Monkey Ranch and the rest of the Dreadnoughts make good their escape from Flint and his team by riding a new vehicle, the Swampfire. Anybody want to say anything about that particular entry into the line? The Swampfire is the convertible pontoon boat slash helicopter, giving the Dreadnoughts more mobility in the swamps. Now that thing's super hillbilly. <laughs> um, it's not a bad scene. I mean, they come ripping right at the camera. So as far as that goes, that's cool. But the design doesn't excite, like, visually. I'm afraid it's another one of those vehicles that I will perhaps never own. It just yeah. doesn't fit the, the Dreadnought aesthetic that I like to believe in. Like, the Mad Max kind of aesthetic that you get from the Thunder Machine is completely lost on the Swampfire. It's very clean, it's very compartmentalized, it's very purpose-built. It's not something that's been cobbled together. It looks like it rolled off a factory, you know, construction line. It doesn't look very dreadnought at all. So. It's also very hillbilly in the wrong way, sorry, but it just seems so mundane. It's not, but it does look like something that's just there. I, I can't put it across better than that. It just, it, it lacks character. It's not even like ugly cool. It's just, uh. I think I like the Dreadnoughts too much, and that's probably why I really don't like that vehicle. It might redeem itself slightly if I found out that it could float adequately, but uh, I don't think I'm likely to purchase it just to find out. So we close out this episode with Beachhead and Mainframe descending into the crypt of Vlad Tepe's, to go check out a suspicious sound that they're hearing. (laughs) Beachhead has a cool line that he utters at that point, (laughs) saying, Yeah, when they buried him, they left his radio on. (laughs) Which I think is a cool parry to um, mainframe just being a little bit more jovial and a little less sacred about everything. Because, like, yeah. Beachhead, Beachhead has a tendency of being a bit of a blowhard, and mainframe's constantly diffusing. But in this case, it's Beachhead who has the laugh line. And I like that. I like that quite a bit. Anyway, so they investigate to find out what this mysterious sound is and find an apparition inside the tomb. <gasps> a real ghost? A ghost. Some kind of silvery, ethereal vision of a woman who, once they enter the tomb, runs up the stairs past them. They're left with a decision. Do they stay and guard the tomb, or do they run after this apparition, find out what the hell it is? 
Because they're both practical men, and they're not going to believe in ghosts, necessarily. Could this be part of Cobra's plot? Well, they reason that Vlad Tepes isn't going anywhere, so they might as well run down this ghost. Which they do. They corner it inside a closed room. And it reveals to be none other than the Baroness, wearing some kind of holographic cloak or something. I mean, what did you guys think that was? I don't know, but when they said... Okay, Cinderella, it's pumpkin time. That's when I started paying attention. <laughs> once again, priceless scripting. And once again, we have a female Cobra operative serving to misdirect G.I. Joe very successfully. It seems like the girls are, are an asset to the bad guys in, in this particular miniseries. And unfortunately, the G.I. Joe females are absolutely nowhere. Whereas in the last two miniseries we had Lady J saving the day with her Hawkeye bevy of varied javelins. In this one Hawkeye, Scarlet, Covergirl they're relegated to background actors at best. Sadly, G.I. Joe is not representing the ladies this time but Cobra is. Cobra's all about, you know, women in the workforce. You enjoyed that pumpkin line, Paul, but I enjoyed the line where they corner the Baroness inside the crypt of Vlad Tepes and say to her, you can't take both of us, Baroness. <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly when another Cobra non-toy vehicle, which we probably thought we needed a lot more as kids than we actually did need, but it was a Cobra earth-boring machine that crashes through the wall and gives Baroness adequate cover swipe the DNA of Vlad Tepes while a new figure a new character, a trio of Cobra Vipers, keep the Joes heads down. Proof once again that episode 2 is the only episode of G.I. Joe that Stephen Summers has watched. Carry on Mole pods <laughs> The Baroness achieves her objective absorbing the entire remains into her little mechanical box mm. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, you heard me. She jumps on top of the Cobra Earth Boring Machine, the unnamed Earth Boring Machine, and plows through the other side of the wall. This causes a cave-in, and the words to be continued fade up on the screen. What will happen to Beachhead and Mainframe? Will they be trapped under tons of rubble as the entire castle comes down around them? Find out! This time, tomorrow, on G.I. Joburg. Or as soon as you put your DVD or <laughs> MOV file into play. Well, it's no surprise that... Uh, never mind, I can't speak on that till the third, third episode. Of course. You aren't watching ahead of the time, are you, by any chance, Cujo? This is actually the first time I've watched the series, dude. What? Yeah. I know. I thought maybe you were watching it in milk-toothed awe back in 1986. Damn, man, I'm crestfallen. Well, it's not like that, dude. Like, the cartoon is the worst version of the <laughs> of the line. So, and like, you knew that. You take that child. back. You take that right back. <laughs> you take that shit back. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, one man's opinion, obviously. I think if I was a child and, and these cartoons were available to me, I would have definitely been watching them and enjoying them. In fact, I know I did. I rented the G.I. Joe movie more times than I care to count. 
I adored it. Well, the, the, the G.I. Joe movie was dangerous. Like You're a far more sophisticated child than I ever was, man. I can't speak on that, brother. I can tell you at this point in time when I was a kid, I didn't like the stun. I didn't like the havoc. I didn't like the trend of putting action figures out into the open. Because that, to me, is when marketers are getting out of hand. Because, like, I think back and, like, the Asp is still one of my favorite vehicles because... It does have flair, it has design aspects, but it's also functional for the most part. And that's what made G.I. Joe important to people. Please cut this out. I don't want to rant. Anytime you talk toys, it stays, brother. Mm. Well, I'm just saying that, like, I didn't like the Havoc, and I kind of lost the line. I'm starting to appreciate some things. I can see what they're doing as an adult. But, yeah, I mean, at this point in time, I was just moving on. So it's, it's new to me. The whole Serpentor thing is new to me. I feel like we haven't heard from Rob in a while. What say you, Robo? Highs and lows. All right, highs and lows. My high is probably also my low. There's so much stuff that happens in this episode. It's cool that a lot of stuff happens in this, but then at the same time, it's not cool because it's very difficult to keep it all in your head and follow it. They're in like a hundred locations, and you're using all these characters in very different ways, which is quite cool. There's lots of different um, assault methods in the ways that they're attaining all of these DNA strands. But then there is so many storylines. Yes, they're all essentially doing the same thing, but you kind of have to keep track of these characters are here, those guys are there. And it's a very it's a very full episode. Like, a lot of stuff happens. But then a lot of stuff happens. <laughs> yeah. It's like Ron Friedman went, okay, previously we had to go to four locations across five episodes. Let's go to uh, eight or more this time. This is the ultimate. This is our last miniseries. Let's go insane. Go everywhere. Yeah. Fuck it. If, if it's just been discovered, we're going there. Shit, we're going to make shit up. I mean, Sun Tzu doesn't even have a body, but we're just going to make a burial ground for him. Let's do it. Him, her, we're not sure. But let's fucking do it anyway. <laughs> you know? If I was to guess, just based on episode 69... Would it be true to say that uh, you regarded one high point as the Cobra submarine that sails down the Seine in Paris? Oh, yeah, no, we completely skipped over that. I I tried to um, say something at the time. Yeah, that was kind of cool that they kind of arrived in the sub. Hmm. That was awesome. I don't remember that sequence. Uh, The beginning of the the assault on Paris is a Cobra sub... (laughs) which manages to navigate down the Seine and unleashes a hold full of uh, stuns. And that's the start of the Cobra Assault. Then there's a a Night Raven that manages to pull up before hitting a building. I mean, that's like a forced perspective thing that I still do not get, but it's it's a very narrow escape. And then I suppose... They made a That's the big vehicular action set piece of the episode, but incidentally, not my high point. My high point was the far more subtle stuff, the sneaky stuff, the scripting that exists between the new Joes and the old god, particularly in Transylvania, between Beachhead and Mainframe, and then you've got a bit of great scripting, we spoke about that already, between Lowlight, Dialtone, Flint, Ricondo, all in the Yucatan. And it's those little jewels that I really love. I also love Zorana's moment to shine. And... Her irreverence as she pulls away, saying, So long, morons! (laughs) Um, It's just a great episode, 
as an audiobook. I love the way the characters are scripted to sound in this episode, even if the action doesn't have quite as much bite. I love when vehicles are made to do interesting things. I love when characters are made to do interesting things. Mm, We didn't have altogether that much of it. There was a lot of running and gunning, standing and shooting, and that sort of thing. It was kind of cool watching Flint and his team diving down into the, the submerged catacombs of Montezuma's... Could you call it a pyramid? I suppose you could. Yeah. Very cool. Especially since it was foreshadowed that it was a, like a pool of doom or something. Like they, they spoke about this water being like, oh, you don't want to take a dip in that. And meanwhile, all foreshadowing because the entire Joe team winds up having to swim down into this, like, it must have been pitch black in there. How they found their way out is, it's actually quite terrifying if I apply my mind a live-action restaging of the events of this episode would be very cool. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it's just a pity in the in the in its animated incarnation, um, not that it has any others, but in its animated incarnation, that pool of doom does really just look like a swimming pool of doom. I mean, like, clearly lots of children have peed in there or something, but, but it doesn't... It's like the idea of it is more menacing than its appearance, which is just a bit sad. But I, you know, use your imagination, get it in there, because once they get underneath there, oh, wow, then it starts getting interesting. High point, Paul? For me, okay, I, I really love the Indiana Jones-esque kind of feel of Arise, Serpento, Arise. It's definitely hearkening towards that indie feel of, okay, there's some kind of megalomaniac is after DNA and whatever relics that uh, that reside in tombs around the world. So now we have to stop them. I, I love that kind of that feeling, you know, like, oh, cool, we're going to go and see new places in the world. So that's kind of a high point for me because I always found that cartoons that dealt with a lot of that kind of stuff, like going to flood Shepish's castle and all that kind of stuff, th- that's the kind of stuff that I don't want to say educated me on, on the occult, but it got me interested in it. It got me like wanting to look up Dracula and, and that kind of thing more. And I really love that element about it. So that would be one of my highs just thematically. I just think it's a great all-round theme, even though, as Rob said, it's just a pity that there's so much, it's difficult to get a focal point in the episode. And then, once again, I love that Serrano shooting out of the side of the the thunder machine. It's just very sexy for me. And the twins doing their usual madness uh, always brings a little bit of joy to me. That's a lot of high points, Paul. (laughs) Nice one. Kujo, high point, buddy. Um, Anytime... That people draw Rakondo. I like it. <laughs> yeah. If you're keeping track of the mustache war, we got Rakondo, we got Mindbender, we got Slaughter, and we got a couple others. But Rakondo's mustache wins this round because uh, if you recall back in the Marvel comic, when he's introduced, he gets the drop on some people in his element. And uh, even if you catch Rakondo off guard, if he's in his element, like Zartan catches him, but he, he turns the tables pretty quick. So I like how they framed Rakondo in this one. It, it was nice scripting. Uh, that whole scene at the pyramid, uh, the the jungle pyramid, I liked it. I liked the players involved. Yeah, low light, scary, cool, man. I've got a low point. Uh, and if you know me, you could probably anticipate this. But we had a few more non-toy plot devices and vehicles slipping into this episode that annoys me uh you know the the things that you can't avoid like cobra subs and gi joe transport planes but why why when 
Hawk has, you know, declared defeat in Paris and decides to meet up with the G.I. Joe transport plane overhead. Why is he not using a jump? He's got these two, like, I don't know, little cylinders attached to his belt on either side. And he uses that to... Unexplainable. It's just beyond belief, man. Why? The jump had been established by the designers of the Sunbow cartoon. It was in the first opening sequence of the first miniseries back in 83. They didn't have to reinvent the wheel. I know that the toy wasn't in production anymore, but it's a hell of a lot better than pulling something new out of their ass. And, of course, the the, the tried-and-true Cobra Earth boring machine, I mean, it's not the first time we've seen it, and it's certainly not the last time. There have been a procession of them over the years. It's Saturday morning cartoon cliché. I never appreciate seeing things that I can't buy, <laughs> but I doubly don't appreciate them when there's something that fulfills exactly the same role that does exist. My low light is kind of the same as Rob's. It's just there's so much happening, it's difficult to find a focal point in the in the episode. And it does let the episode down a little bit because obviously before doing this show, I'm sure you guys had the same problem, but you had to think, did that happen in two or one? You know, and and that makes it difficult. Uh, it's it's definitely a problem that that has existed in both episodes one and two. So, yeah, here's hoping that episodes three, four, and five can get the momentum going. Any other low points, Kuja? I think I'm solid, brother. Thank you. Star rating time. Last episode, part one of Arise Serpentor Arise, I gave it three gold bars or Zartan down payments. Um, because I didn't think any of the action was particularly compelling. I loved the new characters. The way they were presented was was uh, not too heavy-handed, except for uh, one in particular, um, Sergeant Slaughter. <clears throat> I mean, it, it was a G.I. Joe miniseries part one, and it needed a big action set piece that you could walk away with going, mm, I want to get out my action figures and I want to recreate that. It didn't happen in part one. Part two was also pretty subtle, but there was action, and it was played very nicely. It also featured, as I said, some scripting moments that really made me smile. So I'm going to go with 3.5 on this episode. It's bettered the part one by a point five, giving it a nice 70% or 3.5 gold bars. Next lady for a shave. This reviewer felt that this episode should only get three gold bars Mm. out of five because it was just as enjoyable as the first one and hadn't really moved the plot much further than the first one, but it also not moved the plot backwards. And that is why this reviewer feels that Zartan deserves a down payment of three gold bars. That was last time. Moving along. <laughs> I think I'm going to go five out of five, gentlemen. Five Rakondo mustaches. Yep. Yep. Uh, not because it's Impressive. perfect. It's, it's not. Uh, but if you think about all the pieces in play, it just, it's it's good. I mean, the the girls are, are featured well. It has people in different places. There's something for everybody. Uh, there's spookiness. There's, uh, it's, it's good times. 
I'll go easy on this one. You can't take both of us, Baroness. <laughs> and then she locks him up. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just thought of a t-shirt I'm going to make, you guys. That stock has a lot of space in one of those shots. I mean, you could slide your arm through that pretty easily. It's a metaphor, brother. <laughs> oh, you mean uh, when Beachhead was uh, captured, that, that stockade? Yeah, the stockade yes, just kind of locks somehow over his arm. But there's a shot where you can see ample air around his arm. Like, you could just pull your arm out. Anyway, Rob, your gold bars or Ricondo mustaches? <laughs> well, I, I I gotta say I enjoyed this a bit more. Even though it was very busy, I liked that there was a lot to see and there was a lot of action. So I give it 2.5 down payments or two and a half stashes. This is the episode that had the scene that had the three animals in it, right? You saw a snake and then you saw a wolf and then you saw an owl. Am I right? Yes, that's correct. I think that's in the Yucatan sequence. Uh, not there, but I mean, as they're transitioning from each... That's got that's got to bump up a little bit of gold. I mean that that was good scripting right there. You already gave it five. <laughs> I'm just trying to sway you. That's all. I'm trying to encourage someone else to to give it a bit more. Yeah. Remember, ladies that's and awesome. gentlemen, we call him Cujo. Like, what establishes an environment better than nature? Like, they do it a couple times in the series. I, I don't know if it's all at once, but like, dude, you see an animal and you're like, oh shit, they're they're in the you know they're out there. I know. I fully agree. I, I think animals in both video games and uh, animated series are very important to establishing a scene and, and, and giving it a lot more texture and just anchoring its geography a bit better. Yeah, no, totally. And with your animals, I'm pretty sure that our listeners would love to know if we spotted any interesting uh, sort of trivia nods in this episode. And it actually, I had to do a double take on this, but... There's a section when you see Beachhead. I'm not sure if it's meant to be Beachhead, but his face is exposed. Like, his mask is up. It does happen. It crops up. But uh, we haven't gotten there yet. Beachhead. Unmasked. (laughs) Sorry, I keep thinking it's in the second episode for some reason, but... What's our cumulative score on this episode, Rob? Well, Kujo, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, that actually gives me... I'll put it up to three. Um, Nice. Gets a little extra point five. We're using some cool cartoon tricks that gives us actually 3.6 3.6 out of 5 and it is overall across all the miniseries that we've uh, reviewed it is currently the third best rated episode wow Wow. yeah let me guess part three of the weather dominator is still our reigning champ is that revenge of cobra yes Ah, uh, no, it isn't, actually. What? Uh, yeah. You want to know what our, our highest-rated episode was? Uh, Let's uh, have it. It was uh, part five of uh, With the Dominator, actually. With four. Mm, the Battle in the Desert. With uh, part four being the, the next highest at 3.8. Well, that's, that's my personal fave, because why? Zartan and his fun park of death. I mean, can you beat it? No, you can't. <laughs> Joker might have something to say about that. No doubt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Zartan's copying that act off the Joker. Of course it's going to be a crowd pleaser. Gentlemen, it's been real. But you know what? There's a whole lot more to go. So I'm looking forward to speaking to the both of you. I'm looking forward to speaking <laughs> to all of you. <laughs> this time tomorrow. 
Thanks for tuning in, G.I. Joe Burgers. Uh, I hope you're enjoying re-watching and rethinking about and re-engaging with this old stuff. It's 30 years old today. I mean, if that isn't reason enough to get out your team of 86 and have Sergeant Slaughter bash a few battle android troopers, I don't know what is. Tune in this time tomorrow to find out what happens to G.I. Joe in Siberia <laughs> and what happens to mainframe and beachhead after the roof caves in. No points for guessing. They survive. <laughs> this is Steven saying, Yo, Ivan! <laughs> and this is Paul saying, Yo, Joski! <laughs> Rob, will see you tomorrow. Have a good night. Sleep. Cujo, uh, sitting alongside Mindbender. Uh, we'll see you next time. Twirling your moustaches, perhaps. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs>